Bob Clegg has already given you an important part of the theme for today. Let me first say something that many of you already know, I suspect, for two years of my career in ministry, I was campus minister at Oberlin College. I was one of two people in, in that position. So much that you will hear in this sermon is focused to one degree or another on experiences that I had at Oberlin. But those experiences are by no means unique. They were experiences shared in many, many campuses around the country. Peter's Hall at Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio, is a majestic 19th century stronghold of rough-hewn, buff Amherst sandstone darkened by age. Its architects were experts in the design of courthouses, jails, and prisons. I'm not sure what that says about Oberlin College. Nevertheless, that's how it is described. It is approximately Gothic, somewhat domesticated and Americanized. But it is a place of memories where one can almost smell the ancestors and see their images reflected off the rich oiled oak paneling which lines the massive rotunda on the first floor of this magnificent four-story structure. That rotunda has been the gathering place of students on their way to class, some who warmed their hands over the open fireplace in the 1920s, to the Bobby Sox dancers who performed in the 1930s, and in the 1960s, the place of protest rallies. On one side of the rotunda is a dual stairway both sides leading up to a wonderful landing, also quite massive, before a single set of stairway goes up to the second floor of this four-story structure. And that landing is perfect for speakers, for performances, because the acoustics are spectacular. In 1968, late in the year, I was newly on board. Students were protesting the war in Vietnam, and more particularly, the college's refusal, number one, to condemn it, and number two, to prohibit military recruiting on campus by Army and Navy recruiters. And they occupied the building one evening after it was closed. Campus police were called. The students, numbering in the hundreds, refused to leave. Tensions ran high. 
TV stations in Cleveland had been alerted ahead of time, and they were soon on the scene filming the protest. Speeches were being made from that landing. But by and large, the atmosphere was peaceful. So I was in that crowd, standing right next to a CBS technician who was filming the protest, filming the speakers up on that balcony. An SDS member, one of, I think, about a half a dozen on the campus, they were not very big there, was making an, an extremely inflammatory speech, suggesting violence. There were sprinkled cheers, many boos. The next speaker was the president of the student body, and the film technician turned off his camera. And I asked him why. Not sensational enough, he replied. The student body president continued to speak and told of negotiations with Dean Langler, who was my titular boss, my immediate boss. And he said negotiations were going on with faculty members and other administrators and other people indeed in the community, and that there was progress, and that maybe we would have a chance of resolving the dispute. He invited the crowd to leave and slowly, very slowly, Somewhat reluctantly, they did. I went home to watch the 11 o'clock news. It was broadcast out of Cleveland, which is nearby. And so, sure enough, it came up mid-broadcast, the protest at Oberlin with the byline, students threaten violence. We were in a season of deceit, a government lying about a war, a press, including television, deceiving us deliberately. Yet voices were being raised, as they always are, protesting the lies and the deceit and the complicity of persons and institutions engaged in questionable behavior. And the protests of the late 1960s, of course, would continue, both at Oberlin and other places around the country, particularly at Berkeley in California. And then King was assassinated while organizing garbage collectors in Memphis. And we would be reminded in those moments of what we now call Juneteenth, that Nicole talked about a moment ago. And we would recall that Juneteenth begins in Jamestown in 1619 and that it winds its way to Galveston in 1863. But it dwells in the towns of segregation and of Jim Crow and it crosses the bridges of a thousand Selmas and it raises up heroes like Harriet Tubman and John Lewis. It goes to Oberlin and the Underground Railroad. And it goes to Lake Erie. And it goes to Canada. 
We sometimes listen to those stories with hearts of compassion and empathy. We feel for our black brothers and sisters, but just as often, we kill them instead, even now. But from time to time, there is a season, a glimpse of accountability and justice. Sometimes the institutional press cannot help but report the truth. Then, of course, as we all know, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. We were, as a nation, in that period of time, submerged in trauma. What would it take to move the so-called establishment to positive action? Student unrest across the land was fed by a draft lottery. Do you remember that? By a draft lottery, sending young men to their death in Vietnam. And that added to immense anxiety. Picture, if you will, 19-year-old boys enjoying campus life and watching the lottery on television and losing and then retreating to the bathroom to throw up. Or picture men burning their draft cards in special ceremonies organized by yours truly in Fairchild Chapel with FBI agents standing in the back of the chancel. Nixon would win the 1968 election in a landslide with a promise to end the war. The promise was as empty as a black hole. And the protest escalated. And pictures of war atrocities began to appear regularly in the press. Ah, accountability at last. Even in Life magazine, Pictures of our war leaders spraying napalm on women and children running desperately to save their lives. And then, and then, Kent State, 70 miles away from Oberlin, a sister school. And the picture, the devastating picture of the dead body of Alison Krauss being held in the arms of a friend, screaming out and crying desperately, help. Please help. And many joined in that cry. 
please help. The Cleveland Plain dealer at the time held Governor Rhodes accountable, as did other newspapers around the nation. And there was the march on Washington that was massive then, with nearly the entire student body of Oberlin, 3,000 students in number, attending that march in Washington, D.C. And Bob Fountain, leading the world-renowned Oberlin College Choir in singing the Mozart Requiem in the National Cathedral. Maybe the healing and dealing with grief had indeed begun. Were we really in a season of accountability? In June of 1971, the New York Times and the Washington Post published the Pentagon Papers. And Bob has told you some important pieces of that story. Remember that Daniel Ellsberg was accused at the time of treason. Of treason for telling the truth, for telling the truth that should have been told a long, long, long time before. Now it is very natural for all of us to see history, and I think I'm guilty of this, certainly in the past, not so much in recent times, but guilty of seeing all of history just as a bunch of unrelated events. They're separate. There's this here and that over there. It is difficult to put the pieces together into a larger matrix which then connects the dots to see that this leads to that and that leads over there and that goes back to that. And do you see the connection? But we do not need to be a genius to figure out that Jamestown of 1619 leads to Galveston in 1863 and eventually to George Floyd of 2020. Nor is it difficult to see that the stupid war in Vietnam set within the larger context of all wars leads eventually to what we call Watergate. And the challenge that we have always had is to see history holistically History, like creation itself, is an interconnected web. So in June of, of, of 1961, a break-in occurred at the Watergate complex in DC, a complex that I know like the back of my hand. The burglars were caught. And what might have been simple, ordinary event turned out to be different because one of the burglars had a phone number of the White House in his notebook. The rest, they say, is history. 
and two intrepid reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, proceeded over the next two years to make journalism not only accountable, but sensational and glamorous. Investigative journalism became the norm, and no longer were we bound to accept at face value what we were told by government officials or institutional leaders. No longer would serious journalists cozy up to political leaders as they had with Kennedy and others simply overlooking breaches of con conduct. No more drunken poker games. Investigative reporting became the norm with Watergate, and it remains so even today, and we need to protect it. We need desperately to protect it. That's a good thing, says Leonard Downey Jr., who edited many of the Watergate stories. But the problem, says Downey, is that it doesn't have the power any longer to bring down a president. It doesn't diminish its validity, however, says Downey. But another component was present in Watergate that is not present today. And that component has to do with individuals who are in, on the inside of the scandal, who are willing to blow the whistle on those in charge. Ellsberg was one. But during Watergate, John Dean became a major figure willing to risk his own demise in order to save an administration from a malignant cancer that he himself, though reluctantly, had helped to create. Dean basically confessed, and he paid the price, the consequences of his actions. To suggest that he is a hero is a mistake, I think. He is rather, and somewhat belatedly, a sage who has studied and learned the lessons of the past. There was never any hint at that time that the objective was to overturn a democracy and to move to an authoritarian form of government. This is a major difference with what we have today. It is also the case that at the time of Watergate, we had a Congress that was not polarized and the separations of power were respected, particularly the independence of the Justice Department. Checks and balances were operative then, unlike under Bill Barr. And in addition, Nixon had a conscience. He was a crook, but he had a conscience. <laughs> Trump does not. Nixon was totally corrupt, but he had no intention of bringing down the whole government. We are presently in a situation where people lie with impunity and see no consequences. When Nixon got caught, confronted by the likes of a Barry Goldwater, no less, he at least had the decency to resign. He was held to account by his own party. Part of the reason for me preaching this sermon today, and I chose this topic very reluctantly, 
is because I, like many of you, fear for our democracy. Experts who are serious scholars doing intensive research on such matters indicate that we are on a trajectory that is all too rapidly moving from democracy toward autocracy. We are far, far now from being a global leader of democracy. We are quite a ways down the list. And the important variables used as a database or a measuring stick include such things as constraints on the president, checks and balances among government branches, a free press that demands accountability and honesty, fair and open and free voting. But there are other signs as well. We have moved beyond simple polarization to an era of factionalism when citizens form groups based on ethnic, religious, and geographic distinctions and the country's political parties become predatory, cutting out rivals and enacting policies that primarily benefit them and their constituents. And nothing exacerbates factionalism any more than social media. So where do we go? Frankly, I don't know. Frankly, I don't know. But I do know this, that we are in this together. As UUCF friends, as people of Frederick, as people of this nation, and indeed as part of this global community, because it is around the world. We are not alone. And we need to hold each other up. So I have a simple list. It's a beginning list. It's a naive list, okay? First, let's rein in the social media by doing what Canada has already done. Require Google, Facebook, Twitter, and all of the rest to flag extreme hate speech, conspiracy theories, and clear, clearly false information when it appears. And people can still read it, but they are also informed at the same time that it's not true. We can do that. And create a registry of digital political advertisers so that everyone knows where the money is coming from. Because the money is big money. 
literally trillions of dollars globally, trillions of dollars globally, and much of that is right-wing money. The majority of it is. Two, demand press accountability locally and nationally. And we can begin at a simple level with our own Frederick Post, which is doing, I think, a fairly decent job from time to time. I think they have improved measurably. And when they don't, I write to them. <laughs> but we can also hold the Washington Post accountable. I could name some opinion writers that I think need to be held accountable, but I won't. And three, as Bob laid down the, the strong imperative about all of us, all of us doing journalism, let us begin to be our own investigative journalists by asking for answers from city councils, from school boards, from equity officials, and demand, demand openness and transparency. There is nothing worse than secrecy. Attend meetings, speak out. The Watergate hearings were riveting toward the end. And my wife, Carol, and I were on vacation in Muskegon State Park on Lake Michigan with our best friends, Bob and Jan. We had our two children with us Chuck and Michelle, and they had their two girls with them, Melinda and Laura. And the kids played in the sand dunes on the lake, burying dead fish and having mock funerals. It was a poignant scene. There's a wasp. It was a poignant scene with we four adults riveted to the radio and listening to the hearings from beginning to end. And gazing wistfully into one another's eyes and wishing, wishing that we could be a better world. But more than that, hoping, hoping that as a result, our children would not have to bear the burden
of a fractured world and a world at war. And here we are. Here we are once more wondering, trying to hope, and struggling. Amen. <laughs>